So the ostensible goal of the Kilpatrick Dahlgren raid was to free some 13,000 Union prisoners of war held in Richmond. But sinister orders found on the dead body of the raid's subordinate commander pointed to a plot to capture or kill Confederate President Jefferson Davis and to set the city ablaze. Bruce Venter's new book delves into these areas and more as he describes the political maneuvering orchestrated by Brigadier General Judson Kilpatrick to get the raid approved by Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of State of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Included is a new look at the authorship of the infamous Dahlgren Papers. Fresh evidence on the identity of the African-American guide hanged by Dahlgren is also revealed. And new research shows that Richmond was not defended by only old men and young boys when Kilpatrick and Dahlgren attacked the city. In the end, various myths and legends surrounding the raid will be exposed and put to rest. Doesn't that sound dramatic? <laughs> Bruce M. Venter spent 36 years in public education before his retirement, mostly as an assistant superintendent in school systems in New York, Virginia, and Maryland. He holds a BA in history from Manhattan College and a master's in public administration and a doctorate in educational administration from the University at Albany. His major interest is Civil War cavalry, with an emphasis on the career of Union General Judson Kilpatrick. He frequently lectures on the cavalry and has led bus tours on the Kilpatrick-Dahlgren raid. In 2012, he participated in a reenactment of that raid through Goochland County, where he rode with more than 80 troopers for three days, serving as their historian. He's a past president of the Richmond Civil War Roundtable and currently serves as vice, first vice president of the Goochland County Historical Society. Bruce is president of America's History LLC, a tour and conference company that he founded in 2010. He's published articles in Blue and Gray, Civil War, Patriots of the American Revolution, the Goochland County Historical Society Magazine, Washington Times, and numerous professional journals. He's also the author of The Battle of Hubberton, The Rear Guard Action That Saved America, and Kill Jeff Davis, The Union Raid on Richmond, 1864, which of course is the subject of today's lecture. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Bruce Venter. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I want to first say that it is an honor and a privilege to speak at the Virginia Historical Society. In fact, I recognize the Virginia Historical Society in the acknowledgments of my book as one of my favorite places to do research. In fact, several of the documents that are used in Kill Jeff Davis are in the library on the second floor. And so these documents are cited in the book and they were crucial to my understanding of this particular raid. Now I have to tell you, there's many a time I've been in the seats where you are listening to a banner lecture. Because most of the time, the authors and the speakers come from California or Boston or New York City or, or DC, 
I came all the way from Goochland County. <laughs> but you know that old joke about Carnegie Hall when they asked how to get there, practice, practice, practice? Well, if you research, 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 and write a good book, you'll get to the Virginia Historical Society. <laughs> and actually, because I'm a local fella, I'll bet I have a cheering section here. Anybody know me personally? Okay. They didn't, Paul didn't expect that. Now, I have to call your attention. First and foremost, full disclosure, look at the title of that book. It says, Kill Jeff Davis. It doesn't say, Killing Jeff Davis. So I have no partnership with Bill O'Reilly in this venture at all. Now, it means that my book probably won't be on the New York Times bestseller list for like two years, uh, but one can only hope. But my story of the Kilpatrick Dahlgren raid on Richmond, it would make a great movie. And so if any of you have Steven Spielberg's telephone number, please let me know. Now, this book was published by the University of Oklahoma Press. And when you are not a professor like myself, uh, you still have to go through all of the vetting process of a university press. And there's a peer review, and, and you have these anonymous reviewers and what have you. And so I went through two, two segments of that. And I ended up with one anonymous reviewer that didn't like the book. And he happened to say this. Oh, he, I don't know. They're anonymous. Could be a she. Anyway, th this is what the, the reviewer said. The organization and the writing style is an attempt to duplicate that of a novel or a slick history book published by a major commercial press. My goodness, Simon and Schuster would have liked it. This guy didn't like it. But I have to tell you, it's going to be a good read. Uh, nevertheless, the editor at Oklahoma, Chuck Rankin, he knew that it, was, it should be published, and we bypassed that anonymous person. So anyway. What I'm going to do today is, and I, I see from the demographics here that uh, many of you remember the Beatles. And you remember that there was a song called The Magical Mystery Tour. And I'm going to sort of take you on a magical mystery tour today, because there are some things that are going to be magical in this story, and some things that are going to remain a mystery. And so the other thing I want to, to, to mention is that I looked up the size of this auditorium. And it says on the website, 488 people. And it's almost full. Now, Ulrich Dahlgren, who was going to be a major player in this story, had 460 troopers with him when he attacked Richmond. And so I want you to look at the person next to you, <laughs> because there's a good chance that you will not return. because only 250 troopers made their way back to General Kilpatrick's main command. If you were with Dahlgren, you either ended up dead or in a prison in Richmond. So we're going to start out with the uh, sort of the star of our, of our show today, uh, Judson Kilpatrick. And the first thing I want to tell you about him is something that you'll probably remember. You, might, you won't remember all the facts and figures that I mentioned today, but I want you to know that Judson Kilpatrick is the great-great-grandfather 
of CNN cable star Anderson Cooper. <laughs> yes, sir. He has a direct link to Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. Judson Kilpatrick, I can go through it if you want to know it. But anyway, um, so next time you're looking at CNN and Anderson Cooper kind of does a profile, you know, you'll see that nose and everything that Kilpatrick has. Also, I have a description in the book of Kilpatrick with his china blue eyes. And if you look at Anderson Cooper, he has those china blue eyes. So let's talk about Kilpatrick. He is 26 years old in 1864. He is a graduate of West Point, the May class of 1861. He graduated 17th in a class of 45. He was able to get into West Point by stumping for his congressman, which means that he knew a little bit about politics. He was the Val Victorian of the class, which meant that his oratorical skills exceeded those of his classmates. He was also called by his classmates Little Kill, uh, not to be confused with our current primary that's going on. Uh, he was called Little Kill. And um, he also ended up receiving the nickname Kill Cavalry by some men in the Union Army who thought that he was hard on his men and his horses. When Kilpatrick graduated from West Point, the war had just started. Sumter had been fired upon. And he was anxious to get in the fighting. That's why they graduated a month early in May. And he was able, through political connections with the Davies family, to get himself a captaincy in the 5th New York Infantry, the famous Duryea's Duals. And he did it through Judge Henry Davies. Judge Henry Davies' son, Henry Davies Jr., would serve as a captain in the regiment, and Henry Davies' cousin would be a major in the regiment. Kilpatrick was wounded at the Battle of Big Bethel, which one of, was one of the first battles of the war. Uh, he was wounded in uh, the upper thigh, as they say. And uh, some find that amusing. <laughs> I know you're thinking about the anatomy. Anyway, while he was recuperating in New York City, he was originally from New Jersey, he found out that they were raising a cavalry regiment in New York called, to be called the 2nd New York Cavalry, or in a more marital set, uh, martial sense, excuse me, uh, the Harris Light Cavalry. What a great name, the Harris Light Cavalry. And that was because Senator Ira Harris was going to be the, uh, the sponsor of this regiment. Kilpatrick was named the Lieutenant Colonel. Henry Davies was the Major. Mansfield Davies was the Colonel. Eventually, Kilpatrick will become Colonel of this regiment and he will eventually lead a brigade in 1863. He will lead a brigade during Stoneman's Raid. Stoneman's Raid, cavalry raid, occurred during the Chancellorsville campaign. And if you know anything about Stoneman and his raid, they went in all directions behind Confederate lines. Kilpatrick was able to get within sight of Richmond with his contingent of men, but he retired. Now, this is very important because Abraham Lincoln was interviewing uh, exchange prisoners, especially high-ranking officers at the time. And one of those officers said something to Lincoln that stuck in his head. 
And Lincoln wrote a letter to Joseph Hooker, who was commanding the Army of the Potomac at the time of Chancellorsville. And late in May, Lincoln wrote a letter that said, there was not a sound pair of legs in Richmond, and had we known it, we could have gone in and grabbed Jeff Davis. So in May of 63, Lincoln is thinking about grabbing Jeff Davis. Kilpatrick will fight at the Battle of Brandy Station, the largest cavalry battle of the war. In mid-June of 1863, he will be promoted to Brigadier General. In late June, he will be given command of a cavalry division with two brigades, one of the brigades commanded by George Armstrong Custer. I'm sure all of you, have all of you know who that is. He will fight at Hanover where he will stop Jeb Stewart cold, forcing Jeb Stewart to take a few more days to get back to Robert E. Lee's army fighting at Gettysburg. Kilpatrick will fight on the Gettysburg battlefield, and then he will follow the Confederate army as it retreats into Virginia. He will fight in the fall campaigns of Bristow. He will fight at uh, James City. He will be defeated by Jeb Stewart at Buckland Mills. And generally, overall, he will be in command of a cavalry division from June of 1863 right until the time of our raid. When he graduated from West Point, he married Alice Shaler. And this is a picture of her here. He was very devoted to Alice. But unfortunately, in November of 1863, Alice will die. A month later, his one-year-old son, Judson, will die. And a artillery, an artilleryman in the Army of the Potomac wrote this in his diary. Uh, he has just lost his wife and young son and is in a very melancholy mood and just he may do something crazy. I'm paraphrasing it probably a little bit. But he may do something crazy. Now, Benjamin Butler is commanding at Fort Monroe in 1864. He's commanding the Department of Virginia in North Carolina. And he has political ambitions. He'd like to be president. He's a war Democrat. He was successful in taking New Orleans along with Admiral Farragut. But he is now back at Fort Monroe. And he will lead a raid on Richmond. I'm not going to go into any detail of it. It's covered in chapter 3, if you're interested. But it's a very extensive coverage of that raid. He'll take 2,000 cavalry, 6,000 infantry under Isaac Wister. And he will try to capture Richmond, free the prisoners that are in Richmond, and also grab Jeff Davis. That's very important. That is in his orders. Now, why do they want to free these prisoners? They are suffering horrendously, and Abraham Lincoln knows it. Now, let me just give you, I don't like to read a lot, but this is something from the book, and it gives you a description of what it was like in Libby Prison, and particularly on Belle Isle. And it says, to guard against escapes, prisoners were not permitted to use latrines after dark. Quote, the deposits of excrement have been made in the streets of the prisoners' camps 
and in vacant, lot, uh, vacant spaces between the tents. Very, very tough, tough. 20 men a day were dying at Belle Isle. One escaped Union officer called it that rebel hell. A Union Army surgeon observed when they exchanged some prisoners that, quote, many had no hats or shoes, but few had a whole garment. Some had no underclothing. Their hair was disheveled, their beards long and matted with dirt, and their skin blackened and caked with most loathsome filth, and their bodies and clothing covered with vermin. This is what Lincoln was hearing. Now, Butler has a raid on Richmond, 6,000 men, an escaped Union prisoner who was going to be executed by Butler was given a reprieve by Lincoln, and he was just sort of in a, in, a, uh, uh, in a guardhouse. He talks his way out, he gets to Confederate lines, and he blows the surprise. Butler is not able to capture Richmond because the Confederates are ready for him when he gets to Bottoms Bridge, or when Worcester gets to Bottoms Bridge. And so this raid fails in early February 1864. Kilpatrick knows about it. And he has an idea. And I said before that he used his political skills to get into West Point. He has been cultivating politicians throughout his career in the Army. He is, he is uh, using it to get advancements. In fact, one officer wrote that he gets all his reputation through newspapers and politicians. That's Kilpatrick for you. So, in mid-February, 1864, he gets a call from the White House. He gets a call from Lincoln to go meet with Lincoln and Stanton. Now, Kilpatrick has a boss, Alfred Pleasanton, is commander of the Cavalry Corps. <clears throat> Pleasanton's boss is General George Meade, commander of the Army of the Potomac. Meade's boss is uh, Henry Halleck, general-in-chief of the armies. Kilpatrick will jump over these three men and get a personal interview at the White House with Abraham Lincoln, where he lays out his plan to, uh, to free the prisoners in Richmond. That shows you he's got a lot of uh, gumption. gumption. And so he lays out a plan to Stanton, where he says, I need 4,000 men and a six-gun battery. I'll only take five days rations, because I'll live off the land. I'll take only two days forage for the horses and I will go in and get those prisoners. Lincoln signs off on it. Stanton signs off on it. And so Kilpatrick is ready by the end of February to lead a raid on Richmond. At the last minute, they add George Custer to the plan. Custer has been off in Michigan and parts of the North on a honeymoon with Libby Bacon. He gets back to camp late and he is going to be assigned to a diversionary attack on the Confederate left flank going towards Charlottesville. There's a whole chapter on this in the book. I don't have to go in to the raid on Charlottesville. Suffice it to say, Custer is a failure. Some of my friends that like Custer don't like hearing that, but he is a failure. But he does draw off Jeb Stewart uh, for, for, for a few days. The other part of the plan Oh, and then, of course, in his, uh, in his reports, he says what a great job he did uh, raiding Charlottesville, uh, the Charlottesville area, anyway. And uh, 
and he gets himself in the newspaper. Benjamin Butler is part of Kilpatrick's plan, and he is supposed to come up from Fort Monroe and attack Richmond from the southeast. And then here he is, Ulrich Dahlgren suddenly appears on February 18th. The raid is going to leave in 10 days. Ulrich Dahlgren is the son of Admiral Dahlgren, John Dahlgren, inventor of the famous naval gun, the Dahlgren gun. Ulrich is 21 years old. He has not gone to West Point. He's not sure if he wants to be a lawyer or an engineer. Um, through his father's influence, he gets to be a captain in the Union Army attached first to General Siegel's staff, then Burnside's staff temporarily, and finally Joe Hooker's staff uh, during the Chancellorsville campaign. Now, what you have to understand is that Admiral Dahlgren and Lincoln are very good friends. Like the kids would say today, BFF, best friends forever. Uh, Admiral Dahlgren can walk into the White House without an appointment. And that's how he gets his influence with Lincoln. Ulrich Dahlgren is a captain. He's on a staff. Hooker is replaced. Meade takes over. Dahlgren wants to be a combat officer. And he's in Meade's hair. And Meade says, go ahead, take some men and go on a scout. He goes on a scout while Lee is invading Pennsylvania. He will capture famous letters that are being sent from Jefferson Davis to uh, Lee, saying there's no more reinforcements coming. He will leave his men in Pennsylvania and ride through Confederate lines to General Meade's headquarters at Gettysburg and tell Meade that, you know, I have this information. Well, Meade had already decided what he was going to do to hold at uh, Cemetery Ridge. And so Dahlgren is looking for a command. He left his command in, in, in Greencastle. And so Lee is defeated at Gettysburg. You all know that. They're retreating back to Virginia. And an unattached Dahlgren finds Judson Kilpatrick's division of cavalry chasing after Lee's army. And he will attach himself for a day to Kilpatrick's command. And at Hagerstown on July 6th, 1863, Kilpatrick will allow Dahlgren to lead an attack on Hagerstown. The men will be on foot. Dahlgren will be mounted. An unfortunate situation in, uh, in urban fighting. I don't know how urban you would say Hagerstown was in 1863, but nevertheless, there were city streets. And Dahlgren is shot in the foot. Shot in the foot. He stays in the saddle. He's very brave. He's very courageous. I don't give him much marks for his leadership, but he is very, very brave. Anyway, he, um, he is transported back to Washington. In August, his leg will be amputated. The right leg will be amputated below the knee. And he will recuperate in Washington. They think he's going to die. So certain high-ranking people in the government go to Lincoln and say, please do something for him. Promote him before he dies. And so Stanton promotes him to colonel without a command. He's a colonel without a regiment in the fall of 1863. By January of 1864, he can mount a horse with some help. He was a tremendous athlete before the wound. And so he is going to write a letter to his father. He hears about the raid being cooked up by Kilpatrick. There wasn't much secrecy. That's one of the problems of this raid. And so 
he says to his father, I may be tumbled over, I may give up the ghost, but if I'm not on this raid, I couldn't live with myself, or words to that effect. I'm paraphrasing from his letters. And so somehow he gets himself attached to Kilpatrick's command, and he will be part of this raid on Richmond. And this is a, a uh, map from the book. Uh, this, I'm not gonna go through all this, a lot of detail here, but they're gonna leave from Culpeper, and they're gonna, Kilpatrick will end up down in uh, uh, Yorktown, and poor Dahlgren will end up dead, as you know. So they're gonna leave on February 28th. It's almost a day like today. It's really a beautiful day. Ulrich Dahlgren will lead the advance, as I said, 460 men. But there are 460 men from five different regiments. That was the one of the problems with this raid, to get enough men to make that 4,000 men, and actually it turned out to be 3,582. But to get that number of men, they had to go to the other two cavalry divisions. And so you have immediate command and control problems because you have officers commanding men that they don't really know. And so they put together these 3,500 men but they're from, they're, I found that there are at least 15 different regiments uh, represented. Uh, Henry Davies, who was on the raid, said there were 18 to 20 regiments represented. But Dahlgren will lead out on February 28th. They will get to Ely's Ford. They will capture the pickets at Ely's Ford. They will cross the Rapidan River, and they will head to, through Chancellorsville down to Spotsylvania Courthouse, and behind them will be Judson Kilpatrick. The second in command for Ulrich Dahlgren is a very good friend of Judson Kilpatrick's. And as they leave from Stevensburg in Culpeper County, Kilpatrick will say to Major Cook, do this thing upright for me and then ask anything you want. Cook will respond, don't worry about it, General. I'll take care of everything. Well, unfortunately, Cook is a good man, but it's, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna work out well for him. So Dahlgren crosses the Rapidan, gets down to uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse. South of the courthouse at the Po River, he will rest his men. Kilpatrick will come with 3,000 men behind him, the same route, and he will get to Spotsylvania Courthouse, and they will it's a complete surprise to any of the residents down there. They don't expect Yankees this far behind Confederate lines. In fact, one uh, old, old lady said, they're nothing but dirty, nasty Yankees. What are they doing here? And uh, that's, a, that's a real quote. And um, <laughs> even, even for a New Yorker, I put that in there. Uh, and so at Spots at, south of Spotsylvania, they are going to separate. Dahlgren is going to go and cross the North Anna River. He's gonna go into Louisa County, Western Hanover County, and eventually into Goochland. Kilpatrick, with the main force, about 3,000 men, is gonna head back, head towards south, little southwest, Childsburg, uh, to Beaver Dam Station. And when he gets to Beaver Dam Station, he's gonna burn it to the ground. Beaver Dam Station during the war was what I call the corporate headquarters of the Virginia Central Railroad. Edmund Fontaine, the president, lives at, at uh, Beaver Dam Station. They obliterate Beaver Dam Station. Not the first time it's gonna happen during the war. 
But I want to concentrate on Dahlgren today because he has a very interesting story. He will get to Frederick's Hall, and at Frederick's Hall, there are 83 guns in an artillery reserve of the Second Corps, Ewell's Corps. He has an opportunity to capture them, but he is talked out of it by a captured Confederate uh, prisoner and a contraband, a slave. And he thinks it's too well guarded. It's not guarded at all. But nevertheless, he does not try to capture the artillery. He goes from Frederick's Hall, outside of Frederick's Hall, to Bumpus. At Bumpus, he starts tearing up track. Now, one of the things I like to say, here's one of the, the great magical parts of this raid. Robert E. Lee has been on the Virginia Central Railroad coming from Richmond back to his headquarters in Orange County. He has passed by where Dahlgren is only an hour to an hour and a half before that. The hand of fate was smiling on Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy because wouldn't that have been a great catch, a great capture for Dahlgren? But they missed capturing Robert E. Lee. So from Bumpus, they'll go down. They're headed to the James River. Dahlgren's orders are to cross the James River in Goochland County, come in on the south side, and free the prisoners who are on Belle Isle. Kilpatrick is going to attack Richmond from the north, and his job is to get the prisoners that are at Libby, the officers that are at Libby. That is the whole sequence of the plan. When Dahlgren gets to Goochland County, my home county now, there are about three good-sized plantations there on the River Road. You know it as Route 6. The first one they get to is Dover, owned by James Morrison, a Richmond attorney uh, who is a cousin of the Secretary of War for the Confederacy, James Seddon. They are married to sisters. Morrison is not home. He's, in his, uh, he's down in New Orleans where he owns vast uh, land in Louisiana and Mississippi. However, the uh, Yankees start burning his property outside. They do not burn the house. Uh, that house is no longer here. It burned in the 1930s, but Yankees didn't do it. <laughs> from, from, uh, from Dover, the Yankees went over to Eastwood. Eastwood is owned by Plummer Hobson. He is the son-in-law of Henry Wise, Brigadier General Henry Wise. Wise is there. Uh, it's a leap year now. So on February 29th, Wise and his daughter, Ellen Mayo, have come up the canal from Richmond. They, they stayed at the house overnight on the 29th of February. And he, they're there for a little celebration. They have no idea Yankees are in the neighborhood. No idea. But on March the 1st, early in the morning, Dahlgren gets to Goochland County. He rests his men for a couple of hours. And then they go to Dover. And then they go to Eastwood. And as Dahlgren said to one of his men, I want to find the man who had hanged John Brown. He knows that Wise is there. But a Confederate cavalryman has tipped Wise off and Plummer Hobson and General Wise hightail it out of Eastwood and ride to Richmond, lickety-split, to alert the local, defenses, local defense troops in Richmond that Yankee raiders 
are in Goochland. Secretary of War Stanton is not in Goochland. He's working uh, on March the 1st. I think it's a, uh, a Tuesday. And so uh, he's hard at work. This is uh, Sabbat Hill. This is the house that he owns. It's about 900 acres of land. It is 26 rooms. It has a spiral staircase. And befitting the Secretary of War, he has uh, steel shutters on the inside of the house. The Yankees will come here. They will not burn this house. This house will burn in the 1930s, too. I don't know if there's a trend here because of the Depression. I'm not saying anything. Yeah, I'm from New York. I can't say things like that. Now. Dahlgren's troopers will burn some of his barn and, uh, and take some of his livestock. His wife is there, though, his wife, the lovely Sally Seddon. And Sally Seddon is known as uh, the most beautiful woman in Virginia in 1864. She's very talented. She is a great singer, and they have nine children. And you saw what uh, Seddon looked like. He's no Brad Pitt. I don't understand it. But... Um, <laughs> But Sally Seddon is at home, and there's a great story. It was written 40 years after the raid that Sally Seddon invited Dahlgren in. He was on his crutch and knocked on the door, the wooden door, and she invited him in, and she served him blackberry wine. They, in the story, they even know the, uh, the vintage is 1844. And so he, she delays him. She delays him. He's not able to uh, get into Richmond. Well. I've dispelled this in the book. I hate to say it. I, I, I'm surprised I haven't been thrown out of Goochland County because everybody loves this story, and it just doesn't make sense when you put it all together. And I'm not going to get into all the details. If you want to know, you can ask a question. But it doesn't work. The, the facts don't work. And uh, in fact, there's a, something I found that the Virginia Historical Society proved it wrong. But anyway, Sally is a beautiful woman and owner, owner at Sabbath Hill, but I don't think that she, uh, she stopped Dahlgren with blackberry wine. Now, she is so beautiful that I named my beagle after Sally Seddon. Uh, Sally, Sally is the most beautiful beagle in, uh, in, in the whole of Virginia, as far as I'm concerned. Now, the other thing, Dahlgren has a guide with him, a black man. And there's always been different stories about who this man is. And I have an entire chapter on who I think he is. I'm not going to get into all the details, but I think I've solved the problem of who he is. His name is Martin Roberson, and he helped a, an escaped Union prisoner get back to Union lines in Culpeper, ended up on this raid attached to Dahlgren. His job was to get Dahlgren across the James River. And there is a ford at Sabbath Hill. There's, if, if you know where I'm talking about on the River Road where Sabbath Hill is, there is a floodplain. If you go down the floodplain, you'll find the, uh, the ford. My wife found it, and I see Southall Wallace is here. We found it one day. Unfortunately, on February 29th, it was a torrential rainstorm, a torrential rainstorm. The troopers were soaked on the 29th. So on the 1st of March, when they get to Goochland County and they want to cross the James River, it is in freshet, as they say. You can't get across the ford. And so Martin is beside himself. He's, his deal, he's going to be rewarded if he gets these Yankees across to the south side of the river. So quick thinking, Martin says to Dahlgren, well, I know a crossing three miles down to the east at Mannequin Ferry. 
Dahlgren says, okay, let's try it. Well, do you think the river is going to be any lower three miles down? <laughs> it's not. So Dahlgren sends a trooper into the river at Mannequin Ferry, and the trooper's washed away. Dahlgren is losing his patience. The man says, I think there's another spot we can cross, down near Tuckahoe. And they ride down near Tuckahoe Plantation. I'm sure you all know that, Thomas Jefferson and that whole thing. Uh, they get down there, and they run into some contrabands that are walking down the road. And uh, Dahlgren says, uh, what direction are we going in here? Are we headed towards Richmond? They say, no, that you're headed towards Ashland. And so Dahlgren says to the guy, what's going on here? And of course, the man is very confused. Now, I told you Dahlgren is an amputee. He has been in the saddle since the afternoon of February 28th, okay? This is March 1st in the afternoon, and he is, his, there are descriptions of him being emaciated. There are, he's tired, they haven't had much to eat, and he loses his temper, and he orders Martin to be hanged. And there's a sign in Goochland County approximately where he was hanged. It's probably the only... Uh, example of a white Union officer hanging a black civilian that I can think of in the war. And I wish someone would come up with another example, but it's, it, that's what makes this story so interesting. But that has been a mystery for a long time, who this man is and how he ended up with Dahlgren. And I, try, I think I've solved it. Now, Dahlgren will not get across the river. He decides to attack Richmond anyway, and he will come in on the Three Chop Road. And you all know where the Three Chop Road is, right near the University of Richmond. And he will, he will cross, he will come down uh, by the Ridge Church. You all know where that is. He'll come down the Three Chop Road, and right here is the Green Farm. And many of you may know Castle Adamson. He owns the Green Farm. It sits... The house sits back in. It's a federal-style brick building, beautiful building. It will be used as a hospital after Dahlgren's fight with the Confederate forces. And he will first, Dahlgren will first fight, this is, these are maps from the book. Uh, he'll fight here, just below Ben Green's house, and he will defeat the Armory Battalion under Major Ford. And with this success, he will continue to that, uh, that uh, T, at where the uh, Virginia Country Club is, and he will make a left. And that road was called the Weston Plank Road at the, at the time. It's, I think it's called Cary Street Road now. And he will fight another battle. And that battle is not going to go well for Ulrich Dahlgren. He dispersed the Army Battalion, but when he gets to this next fight, portrayed here in this map, I don't know if everyone could see it, there are two battalions of local defense troops commanded by Captain John McInerney. McInerney had been wounded at Seven Pines. He was in the Army of Northern Virginia. He cannot fight any longer. He is with the uh, local defense troops. He's in the departmental battalion. And he is in charge of these two uh, battalions of local defense troops. And there's about 800 of them. And he arranges them on either side of the Western Plank Road. And I call it uh, sort of like a Bunker Hill type of strategy. He says, boys, I only need two volleys. Don't fire till I tell you. Dahlgren comes galloping down the Western Plank Road, fully mounted. McInerney raises his men up, have them fire. Two volleys, they empty about 50 saddles, and Dahlgren is done for. It just, he's not, no, he's not personally done for. His action at Richmond is done for. And so he will retreat back up the Three Chop Road. And this is where something very interesting happens because 
It is the evening of March the 1st. It is raining, it is sleeting, it is snowing. His command becomes separated. Dahlgren and Major Cook with 90 men will go in one direction. Captain Mitchell with 250 men will go in a different direction. Mitchell will end up getting back to Kilpatrick's main command over by um, uh, uh, Tunstall Station, but Dahlgren will never get back. Meanwhile, Kilpatrick will just briefly do this. Kilpatrick will attack Richmond from the north. Um, this shows you his, uh, his game plan here. Uh, the cavalry was not anxious uh, to attack fortified positions. Now, this line right here where the Confederates are, that's Laburnum Avenue. Kilpatrick never gets closer than 250 yards in front of uh, those fortifications. They will fire uh, cannon at them. Uh, one trooper said it was like sending uh, balls down a 10-pin alley. They will dismount. They will fight on foot. Uh, the ground has been so wet from the previous day, this is March 1st, the previous night, that the horses can't get any traction to, to attack. But I don't think cavalry is going to attack fortifications anyway. There are about 800 men from the heavy artillery battalions guarding this. But what I was able to find out is that there were some men from Lee's army here doing an R&R &R in, in, uh, around Richmond, and they will lend a hand to this defense of Richmond. Kilpatrick briefly will, hasn't heard from hasn't heard from Dahlgren hasn't heard from Butler, Dahlgren and Kilpatrick had a signal set up. Uh, they each had a signal officer. They had these coded rockets, different colors, green and uh, white and red, I believe it was, and they were to send it up. You know, tell me where you are. But in the night, you can't use the rockets because of the rain and the and the clouds and everything. So he has no idea that Dahlgren didn't get across the river. He has no idea of anything. Dahlgren can hear Kilpatrick's cannon attacking Richmond, that six-gun battery, but he he can't get over to to, uh, to Kilpatrick because he's already engaged on the three-chop road. Kilpatrick will order a retreat, break off the fight. I have a a, a good analysis of why I think he did break off this fight. And he will retreat over the meadow bridges and to the area around Mechanicsville and Atlee Station. <clears throat> Henry Davies is a brigadier general by now. He is Kilpatrick's second in command. He is guarding the rear of the column. And then we get to Atlee Station. The 7th Michigan Cavalry has uh, picketed that area, but not well. And this man, a real hero of this uh, Kilpatrick raid on Richmond will appear. Major General Wade Hampton, Confederate cavalryman under Stuart. Now, the Confederate cavalry has been decimated from the Gettysburg campaign and the fall campaigning. All of the cavalry basically has been shifted out to parts of Virginia and even the South to R&R, rest and recruit the horses and the men. And so Wade Hampton only has 300 men in the 1st and 2nd North Carolina Cavalry. Nevertheless, from the Fredericksburg area, he has rode all night, and he has two guns with him. He will attack Kilpatrick at 10 o'clock on March 1st, and he will rout the 7th Michigan Cavalry, rout the 5th Michigan Cavalry, and cause Kilpatrick to move. Now, he doesn't rout the whole division, 
but substantially, Kilpatrick does not know uh, what's coming next. So he decides to move his whole command to um, Old Church Tavern. Then from there, he goes to Tunstall Station. From there, he'll go to New Kent. And finally, at New Kent Courthouse, he meets Butler coming up. This is March 2nd. Butler is a little late, a little late. And so uh, Kilpatrick's men are glad to see the, uh, the Relief Corps. Uh, there's a brigade of uh, United States colored troops. And as one man said in, the, in Kilpatrick's cavalry, said, a mountain of prejudice was relieved when we saw those smiling black faces. And so it, was, it did help that they saw that the, the, uh, the USCT troops were going to help them, and, and they were very grateful for that. All right, so let's get back to Dahlgren. Where is he? He's retreated up Three Chop Road. He makes a big arch around Richmond, riding all night. He actually goes past Atlee Station after the, uh, the fighting there. He runs into a uh, wagon train of wounded from that fight that is commanded by a Confederate surgeon. Uh, he talks to the wounded men. One of them was uh, a Lieutenant Colonel uh, Allison L Allen Litchfield. But he leaves them in the ch charge of the Confederate surgeon. He continues on. He gets to Hanover Town Ferry. He finds an old boat, and they ferry themselves across the Pamunkey River. They swim the horses across. And on the early morning hours of March the 2nd, he will start his march across King William County. He is being followed by Confederate guerrillas and some cavalry. They are sniping at him. His purpose is to get to Gloucester Point. And so he goes all the way across King William County. I guess it's 360, approximate area 360. He will get to Aylitz Ferry, and he will get across the Mattapani River, swimming the horses, the men in a, in a, in a flatbed boat. Uh, Dahlgren will be the last man to cross. There is an image of him on his crutch firing his pistol at Confederate guerrillas. So I can't take anything away from Dahlgren in terms of his courage and bravery, but some of his um, common sense was lacking um, on this raid. Now, they get into uh, King and Queen County, and they're being followed by Confederate troops. Lieutenant James Pollard is commanding a contingent of the 9th Virginia Cavalry. They are on the R&R. There's the 5th Virginia Cavalry, a small group, doing R&R. There's the 42nd Virginia Cavalry Battalion, which has been coming from Richmond following Dahlgren. And the King and Queen Home Guards. Lieutenant Pollard puts together about 150 men chasing after Dahlgren. There's a little skirmish at Brewington Church, which forces Dahlgren to take this river road like I said, he's trying to get to Gloucester Point. He knows there's Union gunboats on the York River. The Confederates, under Pollard, will go to Stevensville and get ahead of Dahlgren and set up an ambush, set up a barricade in the road. Right here at Garnett's Creek, Dahlgren will camp for a few hours and cook some food, being watched by home guards from King and Queen County while they're eating. 
Major Cook takes an inventory of the ammunition. They have 70 cartridges left among about 80 to 90 men. That's all they have. About 10 o'clock, Dahlgren will mount them up, and they'll ride down this road here, the river road. And I'm going to tell you, King and Queen County has not changed much since the Civil War. <laughs> you can take one of those Gilmer maps that Paul sells in the, in the bookstore and, uh, and superimpose it on a modern map. The roads haven't changed. And so Dahlgren is marching down this road. There are accounts where the banks are four feet high on this road. They are still four feet high on this road. And Dahlgren will be in the lead. One of his scouts comes back and said, uh, Colonel, there's a barricade there. And Dahlgren will get his officers together, and they will take the lead. Major Cook, Lieutenant Merritt, uh, Major uh, Bartley, who's the signal officer. They still have two uh, Confederate prisoners that they captured near uh, Bumpus with them. And they will ride down that road. And there will be a Confederate that will come out from beyond the barricade. And he will challenge Dahlgren. And Dahlgren will challenge him. And Dahlgren will pull out his pistol and fire his pistol. And it will misfire. And pandemonium will break out. This is what it looks like to Harper's. And 150 Confederates with muskets and carbines and squirrel guns and pistols or whatever they had firing at Dahlgren's column. He will go down with five bullets in his body. Lieutenant Merritt will be wounded in the leg. Lieutenant uh, Major Cook will be pinned under his horse for maybe 30 or 40 seconds until he can get out. Dahlgren is left dead in the road. The other officers scramble back to where the men are in a clover field. And they have to make a decision. Major Cook takes command. And he said, it's going to be every man for himself. So they put the, um, no, he did. He said that. You, you think that's not true? Now, they took the hilt of the sabers, tied the horses to the hilt of the saber. They took their carbines, broke them apart, buried the parts so the Confederates couldn't use them. They decide to crawl out on their hands and knees. Most of the men say, no way. We've, we're done. We're, we can't go anymore. About 12 decide to uh, escape from the situation they're in. The officers and the scouts go in one group. And they get to an overseer's cottage. And Major Cook will be in command there. And they ask for some breakfast. And the, overseer, uh, the overseer's wife starts to serve them some food. And she will send one of the slaves that they supervise to Captain Bagby, who is the commander of the King and Queen Comb Guard, also the pastor of the Brewington Church. And this is his plantation. And so he will break into this uh, overseer's cabin with his son and a slave and get the drop on Cook and the officers and the, uh, and the scouts, and they will escort them to Richmond as prisoners. Cook will turn over his revolver, of course, but also his silver watch, because he will say to Bagby, better that you have it than I give it up at Libby Prison. And so as they're being escorted away, this is how the next morning, March the 3rd, 1864, Dahlgren is laying in the road. A young boy about 13 named William Littlepage is rough, rustling through Dahlgren's body. And he finds a set of papers. He also finds a cigar case. I think he finds a watch. He's more interested in the cigar case than these papers. 
And he's 13, he's from King and Queen County. I don't know whether he could read or not. But he will look at the papers and give them to his teacher, who is also a captain in the King and Queen Home Guard, Edward Hallback. And Hallback can read. And he sees right away, this is big stuff, big stuff. And so he will bring it to Lieutenant Pollard. Lieutenant Pollard will bring the papers to uh, Colonel Beale, who was the commander of the 9th Virginia Cavalry. Beale will send it to Richmond to his commander, uh, Fitzhugh Lee, who was in Richmond at the time. And Lee will take it immediately to Jefferson Davis. And there will be two sets of orders. There will be one set of orders that say, Jeff Davis must be captured along with the cabinet and Richmond set ablaze. There's another set of orders that say Jeff Davis and the cabinet must be killed on the spot, on the spot. And so that creates a great furor among Confederate officials. General Braxton Bragg, Secretary Seddon, they want all of the Yankees who have been captured on this raid to be strung up immediately. This is black flag warfare. And so it becomes a great, there's a great furor over all of this. And they actually make Xerox copies of the orders. <laughs> now you're all laughing, I have an explanation. You're all laughing. I did 10 years research on this. I know what I'm talking about. What they did is they took photographic copies and they took pictures of the orders and they sent one of those, sec uh, one of those uh, copies to Robert E. Lee, wanting to know what, what's going on here? What should we do? Lee looks at it. Now it's gotten out in the papers, so the union knows about it, union officials. They're all saying, no, not me, not me. We didn't order Davis killed. And so Lee writes a letter to General Meade saying, can you send me an explanation about this? Well, immediately, Union officials, government officials say, these are forgeries. The Confederates made it up. They added words to the orders. Well, they didn't. I've, I pretty much debunked that. And other, other historians before me have, have looked at it very seriously. They were not forgeries, believe me. But Robert E. Lee has a very difficult situation because his son, Rooney Lee, a Confederate uh, Brigadier General, had been captured. He was getting ready to be exchanged. If the Confederacy starts hanging Yankees, it's gonna be a problem for Robert E. Lee. And so he asked Meade for an explanation. Meade, of course, was not in favor of the raid to begin with, and so he sends it to Kilpatrick. Now, I know I didn't mention this earlier, but Henry Davies is a New York City lawyer. And so I think that Henry Davies, Kilpatrick's second in command, Brigadier General Henry Davies at the time, probably gives Kilpatrick some advice. And Kilpatrick writes back, well, I approved orders, uh, but the, I wrote in red. I wrote in red and, and authorized. Well, do you think red is gonna show up on a photographic copy in 1864? No, it's not. But anyway, Meade takes that letter, sends it to Lee, and Lee accepts the explanation that Kilpatrick and Meade and Stanton and Lincoln are not responsible, that it probably is something else, 
and the onus is put on Colonel Dahlgren. And a lot of things happen in the meantime. I've laid it all out. The Union officers that are captured are put in Libby prison, and they have some United States colored troops that are also captured, had been captured near Charles City Courthouse. They are put in the same dungeon with the black troops, and this is supposedly a great disgrace. Uh, Major Cook didn't see it that way. He didn't see it that way, but, but the Confederates thought they were doing a great disservice to the officers. And so the spring campaign is getting ready to start, and so the hubbub and the furor over these orders is going to subside. The Confederacy did send copies of those orders to all the major capitals of Europe, including the Vatican. They wanted to get the world against the USA. And so it's a very, very interesting story of the Kilpatrick Dahlgren raid on Richmond. I'm really glad of all the time I spent researching it. And like I said in the beginning, there were some great resources here at the Virginia Historical Society. And so I would commend the book to you because it's a great story and you're all from Richmond area. You'll really identify with a lot of the places that are mentioned in the book. And I hope you enjoy the story. Thank you very much. The uh, prisoners are leaving, you can see. Bruce is very entertaining and, uh, and informative. Uh, I guess if it were today, we would seed and send Navy SEALs and drones uh, to do Dahlgren's work. But um, did well, you- Could I just, before you ask your question, can I just draw an analogy? Yeah. I was able to get a copy of the um, uh, the report that was done after Jimmy Carter sent that uh, rescue into uh, Iran to get the hostages, and it was a debacle. Many of the things that are mentioned in that report, command and control, terrain, weather, are all part of what happened on this raid. So you're well said. Go ahead. Should have had your book. <laughs> uh, to what extent do you think that the this event may have had to influence John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. I've had that question before. I don't think it had a lot. I, I, I really don't. I've kind of looked at uh, the material that was written uh, subsequent to the war, uh, to, subsequent to the raid, and I, I don't really tie that in at all. I know Elizabeth um, Van Lu was one of the people who, I'm right here. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, was one of the people who um, actually uh, moved his body, Dahlgren's body. Uh, and she was very close to Benjamin Butler. Uh, did she in the Richmond Underground have any idea that this raid was coming on? Uh, pretty much so, yes. She had, she had encouraged Butler to do his raid. Only she said that you need 30,000 to 40,000 men to do this kind of raid. Butler had 6,000 and failed. Kilpatrick had 3,500 and failed. Uh, so I'm sure she knew about it because 
one of the things that and I have several quotes about from diarists that it was no big secret. Uh, before the raid went off, there was a big George Washington celebration in the winter encampment of the Army of the Potomac on uh, George Washington's birthday celebration. Kilpatrick invited all his friends who were congressmen and senators, and he put up this big theater, had a picture of himself there, let them all spew their political rhetoric, and then he got up on the stage, and he kind of intimated that there was this really big thing happening. So there are a number of diarists who say that there was no secret to this raid. So I'm sure Elizabeth Van Loo knew about it. Could you tell us if the original orders are still extant, and if so, where are they located? That's a very good question. They do not exist. And that is another part of the Magical Mystery Tour. In November of 1865, the, the original orders were part of the Confederate government documents that were captured, brought back to the War Department. In November of 1865, uh, Secretary of War Stanton checked them out like you would a library book. He never brought them back. Okay? Never brought them back. And uh, so the only thing we have are the, the Xerox copies. Uh, you talk about when those, uh, the orders were found, uh, March 3rd, and then they were sent down to Richmond. And from Richmond, photos were made, and the, um, they were sent to Lee. Lee sent them to Meade. Meade responded. I'm sitting here thinking, how could all that have gone on? Uh, obviously, the post office wasn't running at that time. Uh, but that does that, I mean, this, every time somebody asks a question, the speaker always says, well, that's a good question. I'm afraid you're going to say, that's, this is not a good question. <laughs> but uh, I'm sitting here. It's a here, great question. <laughs> thank you. I'm sitting here just, I, I can't comprehend of all that that anybody would even know that it was all sent uh, back and forth, and especially with uh, the surrender coming in five weeks. No, this is 1864. Oh, my mistake. It was a bad question, I see. <laughs> I'm not going to let you die on a vine, though. This happens over several weeks, from, from uh, March 4th until April. This is transpiring. I have to... You know, I, I went over time anyway to try to tell the whole story, but uh, there's even more to it. But it it's goes over several weeks that this happens. Uh, who, who signed the orders? Well, one set of orders are signed by Ulrich Dahlgren. We don't know who signed the other one. But I have a pretty good suspicion of who originated the order to kill Davis, and it's all spelled out in Kill Jeff Davis. Yes, did Kilpatrick pay off on his bet with Pleasanton? Not that I know of. I never found that uh, to be a possibility. I, he's referring to the fact that Kilpatrick sent a note, I think it was like February 29th, that 30 miles from Richmond, double my bet to $5,000. Uh, I don't know that he ever paid off on that debt. Um, if, I could, if I could just say one quick thing. I want to just end with, usually my wife asks this question for the audience, um, to show you the political power that Aldmer Dahlgren had, and I lay it all out. 
there's a set of uh, documents in the National Archives that after the war ended, the U.S. Detective Agency, part of the Provost General's office, went and found as many things of Dahlgren's possessions that they could. They found out what happened to the ring that was cut off his finger by a Confederate, the gold ring. They found out. They found out what happened to his crutch. They found out what happened to his prosthesis. They found out what happened to his overcoat. They found out what happened to his horse. And I lay it all out because these documents are just, no one's ever used them before. Even a biography of Dahlgren didn't find these papers. And so it's a very, very interesting story of the political power of Admiral Dahlgren and how he loved his son and what lengths he would go to to revere his reputation. Thank you.